would please take your Bibles and turn in them to Micah. We'll be closing out chapter 1 by looking at verses 8 through 16. The page can be found on 776 in the Bible in the pew there for you. Micah chapter 1, starting in verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Etzel shall take away from you its standing place. The inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Aksib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Moresheth. The glory of Israel shall come to you, Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. You may be seated. And as you do, let us together go to the Lord and seek his help as we come to his word this morning. Our Father God, this is a song of sorrow that is voiced from your servant Micah. And as we come to it this morning, we pray that we would learn from it. Learn from it to fear you all the more. Learn from it to mourn and to grieve your judgment that still is at work in our lives today. And may you also work in us to see our own sin, to see our own need, as we've just sang, to, to repent, to come to you, finding that in you is all the grace and strength that we need. May my words be faithful to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I was preparing for this sermon this week, I came across a meme that I felt captured all too perfectly the exact opposite of the spirit that we see here in Micah chapter 1. The meaning, I believe, was sought to call out or even ridicule the silly reactions of our modern era whenever disaster strikes. So picture with me, if you will, the meme is, is the Titanic, that, that classic scene of its nose pointed to the sky with its stern slowly taking on water and sinking. And the vantage point for you, the, the person there, is as one who is in the water. Your head is barely above surface, and with you is everyone else who is in the water with their heads above the surface. But along with a bobbing head is also an extended arm, and you can probably guess where I'm going. In that arm is a smartphone. And each and every person, while they're trying to keep their head above water, is also at the same time taking a picture or taking a video of the sinking ship. And there are no words in this meme, just the caption, if the Titanic sank today. The meme, I believe, is declaring a, both a comical and a sad reality in our day, that when disaster strikes, the spirit of our day is not one that responds as it should. Now, rest at ease, this sermon is not a declaration of war against smartphones. If you want that, come listen to me talk to our youth on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings that was a half joke. Um, no, this sermon is instead about the prophet Micah's response to the disaster we heard of last week. 
This is not a natural disaster. This is not a technological disaster. This is the disaster of God's judgment coming against his people for their sin. And what we find in Micah's response is, both, is an impressive, an impactful, and an even an instructive response. For Micah doesn't do what our modern world would have us do, whip out his cell phone, start recording, or start taking pictures. He doesn't sit back and watch, or even gloat, or start to rejoice, pointing a finger at Israel and slapping at them. Instead, he sings this song of sorrow. And his song is one that all God's people today would do well to learn in singing, learning to adopt for ourselves. For God's judgment against his people should grieve and awaken the hearts of his people to the reality of our own sin. And such is the goal in Micah's song in this lament. It is to express his own genuine and deep sorrow over the plight of God's people, while also calling them to join him in mourning, and also to examine themselves and to see the reason for God's judgment is warranted. They're guilty. And this entire song, it's a remarkable mix of, of puns and plays on words that Micah uses to emphasize, maybe even overemphasize, the overwhelming judgment of God. And so in that same spirit of puns and play on words, our three points are going to seek to very underwhelmingly follow suit. They're there for you in the bulletin. We're going to look at the prophet's intention, the prophet's lamentation, and then the prophet's invitation as we work through this passage this morning. And in verses 8 and 9, we find the prophet's intention. Right off the heels of declaring that Samaria is doomed for destruction and that Jerusalem is wrapped up in her guilt, Micah tells the people what he is going to do about it. And again, this stands in contrast to both the, the way that people in that day would have responded and also to the way we typically respond. My own attitude, I'll be honest, it would probably be to, to be more like the other prophet, Jonah, to climb up onto the mountain, to get my popcorn ready, and to take in the sight, the fireworks that are coming. I often find myself apathetic when I read of, witness, or hear about the demise of, of one's faithful pastors or individuals, of churches, of denominations, due to their immorality, their idolatry, whatever sin it is that you name. But the reality is, such demise is the present outworking of God's judgment against his people. It mimics not only what we read last week in the first half of Micah chapter 1, but it also mimics what we find at the end of Revelation chapter 1 and in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Where in that vision, we see Jesus Christ is moving through the churches and he's threatening in judgment to take the lampstands. To close down churches in judgment for their sin and their rebellion. And so as much as we want to today rightly decry the spiritual state of the church, particularly in the West, we also need to recognize that what we are witnessing with churches closing, denominations dwindling and disappearing, of leaders failing, is God's active judgment against his people for their sin. These are signs of what I quoted last week from 1 Peter 4. It is time for judgment to begin, and to begin with the household of God. 
And so our intention with our responses should mimic what we see here in Micah. And the first intention we see is Micah is going to grieve deeply. Look at verses 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. What Micah says he's going to do doesn't jive with either our modern sensibilities or even those of that day. We, we're fine with expressions of grief, but we want them to be a little bit more measured, more tempered, more reserved. By all means, feel, feel sad, express your sorrow, but do so with decency. Don't, make, atten- don't draw attention to yourself and certainly don't make anybody feel uncomfortable. Nobody wants that. Micah's not playing that game. He's going to put his grief on full display. More than multiple ideas we find in this text, there's really just one overarching idea. Profound anguish and grief. Micah's grief is going to be audible with weeping and wailing. I'm not going to try to mimic the sound of a jackal or an ostrich for you this morning because it's not a pretty sound. I did look it up on YouTube just to kind of get an idea. They're not, they're not lovely sounds. They're ugly. They're hideous. They hurt the ears. But you don't need to actually know what the sound like to get the idea. Mike, Micah's grief is going to be loud. There's going to be wailing. But it's also going to be physical. There's going to be signs of his grief, of his mourning, of the loss that he feels on behalf of God's people. Those words stripped and naked can also mean naked and barefoot. Which you know, you know your Israelite history, there was a moment in time where a king of Israel, weeping with tears, barefoot, without his royal garb, ascended the Mount of Olives as he fled Jerusalem for his life. That was King David in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Micah's making it clear that this destruction of Samaria, which may have taken place at this point, there are some who argue that there is a gap between verse 7 and verse 8, and in the middle of that gap was the destruction of Samaria. But whether this destruction has happened or is about to happen, Micah is going to mourn it. He's going to grieve it deeply. But he's not just going to grieve deeply. Because he's also revealing something about the city where he stands, Jerusalem. Look at the second half. He says, for her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. As we heard last week in verse 5, Jerusalem and the southern kingdom, they're not a perfect child. They're not sitting there with a halo on their head or, or robed in glory as they look at their sister and say, wow, she's pretty bad, but she's not us. They have not managed to dodge the bullet of God's judgment that is coming. Micah actually says that the same issue, the same plague that has taken over Samaria has reached Jerusalem. Like a cancer that has started in one area and slowly worked its way to then spread through the entire body, so it has reached Jerusalem. It has brought the same infection, the same sickness, and the same consequence. To borrow the imagery that that Jesus and Paul would use in the New Testament, The leaven of Samaria has reached Jerusalem and it has leavened the whole lump. The very heart of David's city, the gate of my people, as Micah calls it, it's pulsing with 
not glorying and delight in the God of the covenant. It's pulsing and glorying in the sickness and the wickedness of Samaria that is now its own. And the diagnosis is the same. It's terminal. And because Micah has a deep love for his people and because he has a great concern for the glory of the Lord, all this does is intensifies this level of sorrow and mourning that he has over the people of God. And he's telling them he's coming to declare his sorrow. Are we ready to grieve then like Micah? Is there sorrow within us when we see God's judgment that is poured out upon his people for their sin? When we witness a lampstand being removed by the judge and head of the church? Do we mourn the polluting effects of sin? Not just in our culture where it's so easy to see and it's so easy to pinpoint. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But do we also mourn it when we see it in the church where it often lies hidden or in the dark, or in secret. Our Savior showed us what it's like to mourn the people of God, to grieve and lament the people of God. You can go to places like Matthew 23 and Luke 19, where we hear the words of our Savior lamenting his sorrow for the people of God and their rebellion. Is there grief when we witness another church or an individual Fall for the same sins that brought destruction here, that have brought destruction throughout the course of history. May our hearts not be moved to, to apathy or indifference to the reality of God's judgment against the sin of his people. From this intention, we move then to the prophet's lamentation. Micah sings this song for the people of God in verses 10 through 16. Verse 16 works as a, as a conclusion, so we'll save that one for our third and final point. But in the body of this song, Micah stresses one overarching theme, and it is the overwhelming disaster that is coming for the southern kingdom, for Judah. The cascading effect that we saw in the very beginning in verse 4 where the Lord was descending and the mountains would start to fall under the weight of his glory. And then we saw Samaria itself would crumble as the Lord came in judgment upon it. That judgment is going to keep on rolling. That snowball is just piling more and more. And it is that sense of judgment that is the primary focus of Micah's song and the primary emphasis of his lamentation. For with the exception of Gath, that first city, all of these cities are neighboring cities of Jerusalem. They're small towns. They're not big cities. And even more so, these are Micah's people. His hometown of Morsheth is even included in verse 14. And all of them are going to be swept up in the disaster that's coming to Jerusalem. They won't be spared, but if, in reality, they're going to be the first fruits of the judgment that's coming to Jerusalem. They will fall first showing Jerusalem that you are next in line. Now, we are all familiar, I think, with, with sad songs. There is no formula, at least not that I know of, about what makes a song sad. Sometimes it's just the words that make the song sad. If you're a 90s child like I am, I think of R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. Just a song just blatantly out there, it's time to feel sad. 
Sometimes it's the music and the sound. I think of Whitney Houston's cover of And I Will Always Love You, which brings that, that sound to dial in the, the remorse and the sorrow that's being felt. Sorry to Dolly Parton fans. I like the cover better than the original. I'm staring at Tom Fox because he's giving me a stare down right now. <laughs> but sometimes it's also the context in which the song is written. I think of Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven, which if you're familiar with the, the tragedy that inspired that song. What we find here in Micah's song is that there's elements of all three. It makes this song a truly sad song. It has the words of sorrow. It has the sound that we may not pick up in the English, but it's there. And it certainly has the context. I mentioned it earlier, but this entire song is a play on words, is a mix of puns. Impressively so. To give the song what one commentator calls a dynamic and dramatic effect of the destruction that's coming. It gives clues to the curses that each city is going to suffer. It touches on specific sorrow and devastation for each town as God's judgment marches closer and closer to Jerusalem. And again, this isn't for show. This isn't Micah saying, look how, look how well I know the Hebrew language or look how good I am at linguistics. It's not a way to get this song to the top of the charts in Jerusalem at this point in time. No, they're intentionally done to drive home just how complete and devastating the judgment of God will be for the southern kingdom. And so to help us see this and grasp this, I'm going to briefly, not exhaustively, just hit each city and hopefully show you the, the, the puns or the play on words that we see to, to emphasize the lament, the sorrow that Micah feels. And the sorrow begins right in the beginning. Where he cries out in the beginning, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. Those very words have a history in Israel. They have been said before on another day of national and personal disaster, which Micah is feeling at this present moment. It's a national disaster because the, the capital of the southern city is going to fall. It's a personal disaster because his friends and his families are in the, are in the bullseye. And that day when Tell it not in Gath was said, if you're familiar, was said at the end of 1 Samuel 30. On that day when Saul and Jonathan and Israel fell to the Philistines. And David in 2 Samuel 1 laments the loss of his friend, of his king, and his people. And he says, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Micah is placing his lament, his sorrow, his anguish in that very same context that David had way back when. And then it continues on. Bethlehaphra, that literally says house of dust. The house of dust is going to roll in the dust to signal their grief and their humiliation. Shafir literally means beauty town. Beauty town is going to watch not its people parade in dresses and royal garb. They're going to watch its people parade naked and shamed on their way to exile. Beauty town is going to watch everything that it holds dear stripped to the bones. Za'anan means go forth. The city of go forth is going to go nowhere. 
it will remain shut up, hiding in their city as the nation of Assyria rolls through, destroying in its path. The takeaway house, Beth Etzel, will find itself no longer standing as that city of protection for Judah. The city of takeaway will find its standing taken away. The people of Maroth, Maroth sounds like Marah, think Naomi when she came home with nothing. She said, I am bitter. The city of bitterness is going to sit and anxiously and hopelessly wait for something good. They're going to think Assyria is that bringing something good and all they're going to find is Assyria is bringing judgment. Jerusalem, we know what that means, the city of peace. They're going to wake up to calamity and disaster at its doorstep. There will be no good or security coming for Jerusalem. Lachish, probably the most emphatic one here. For Lachish was a city that was known for, exalted in its own, took pride in its military strength, particularly its chariots. It had chariots that were strong, that were powerful, and what it was going to find is that they were going to mount their chariots, but not into battle. They were going to mount their chariots and run away from the battle. They're going to find what uh, the psalmist would say, that trusting in chariots and horses, not in the name of the Lord our God, is a recipe for disaster. It would lead to their downfall. Then Micah's hometown gets thrown in of Morsheth Gath. Morsheth means betrothed. The city of betrothal is going to get carried off as a parting gift, as a dowry to a new husband. Aksib means deception. Aksib at the time was, was a city renowned for its pottery, right up Dan Bukowski's aisle. It actually would supply the monarchy with its pottery so that they could show it off, that they could sell it, that they could make money for it. And the monarchy, the city, thought that Aksib would continue to support them. But what they would find is that they would be deceived. The support of Aksib would go to Assyria. It would go somewhere else. Then we get the inhabitants of Marsha. Marsha means conqueror. The city of the conqueror was going to be conquered. They would be taken off as the inheritance of their new conqueror. And lastly, the song closes with Adullam, which again, Gath has a history in Israel. So does Adullam. Adullam was the city where David, the glory of Israel, fled to when Saul was after him. When Saul wanted him dead, David fled to Adullam. And once again, Adullam would find the nobility fleeing to it for safety and refuge. Because the city of Israel, I mean the city of Jerusalem, was no longer a safe place. I realize this is just a quick run through and it really doesn't do complete justice to Micah's song. But this is the puns or the play on words that Micah is using to, to show forth the devastation that's coming. And also to announce his sorrow and his grief for what is coming for God's people. And so what do we learn then as we hear this song sung by the prophet? 
I think first and foremost, we learn like we saw last week of, of a renewal for us in the fear of the Lord. Because he is still the judge. The judge of all heaven and earth, but also the judge of his people. But I think also we need to learn to lament. Not complain, but lament. We should be encouraged to adopt songs like these in both our personal and our corporate lives. Learn to sing them, even if they're not pleasant. Learn to pray them, even as we observe the judgment of God around us, in front of us, within us. Lament our own sin and the consequences that it brings in our own lives. Grieve the chariots that we have trusted in instead of the Lord our God. Grieve the rocks that we have clung to instead of the rock that is the Lord. Learn to cry out words like Psalm 85, restore us again, O God. Put away your indignation against us. Even learn to mourn the reality of God's judgment against his people for their continued rebellion against him. And with that, then, we get to finally the prophet's invitation, the close of his song in verse 16. Micah closes this song of sorrow with a call for the people of God, particularly her leaders, to come and to grieve with him. This song that's at, the, at this point has been focused on all the surrounding cities now fixates on the city where Micah is delivering this song, Jerusalem. Any sense of security that the nobles or the religious leaders would have had to this point is now stripped away completely. Any hope that they had that the avalanche of God's judgment would somehow go around the city and then keep on rolling, it wasn't going to be the case. Micah gives three commands in this short verse at the end of, song, of, the end of verse 16. He says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. Make yourselves as bald as eagles. This is no call to feel sad. This is no call to sing the blues or to shed a couple of tears. Shaving and grief were common companions of that day. Shaving was an appropriate way for you to tangibly express the sorrow that you currently have. It was a sign to those around you when they saw you, oh, this person is in mourning. But it would, usually at that time, it would stop with what many of you experience today. Just, just a bald spot right on the top. That's as far as you would go. Sorry if any of you have touched a nerve there. But what Micah commands here is not just to have a bald spot. It's to get out the clippers and the razor. Shave it off. Go to the full extent. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, though it's probably more the vulture in this context. A vulture has a bare head, and I'll be honest, it's a very ugly head. And it certainly suggests some kind of grief. But we also know that Job, when he found out the news that everything he had was lost, shaved his entire head to show his profound grief and anguish. Micah's commanding, not suggesting, he's commanding the leaders to do like Job. Embody the destitution and the grief that is coming because of Jerusalem's sin and judgment. 
show the grief genuinely. But Micah doesn't stop just with that command. He actually drops the second bomb, if you will, in this entire chapter. You'll remember the first one was in verse 5, whereas the Lord is descending. Israel's probably gearing up for Assyria to be named, and instead it's Israel, Jerusalem. The heavy song here closes with a heavier, possibly even the heaviest word. Look at it with me. For the children of your delight, they shall go from you into exile. The word ends with exile. Exile has been hinted at, but now it gets stated clearly, and it's stated as a foregone conclusion. It's as good as done. For Israel, as we know, exile was the final curse given to the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It was the most dreaded and severe of God's punishment. To go into exile, Dr. James Boyce writes, was to become a slave. And to have an entire people exiled was the death of a nation. Such was the wages, Micah is saying, for the, for the sin of Israel. She's going to know the full anguish and the sorrow, disaster and defeat and even death. So as scandalous as shaving one's head may have seemed, now it doesn't seem so scandalous. Now it seems incredibly fitting. But more so than just telling Israel, Jerusalem in particular, that exile is coming. Micah is not looking for a choir to add to his solo. He has a deeper purpose in this song. And Leslie Allen, in his commentary, states it like this. Micah whips up his, hearer, his hearer's emotions and pushes them into inconsolable grief in order to dispel their complacency and arouse in them a sense of their own sin and liability to punishment. And it's the same intent it has for us today by the power of God's spirit. Will this song of sorrow, this lament off the lips of the Lord's prophet, whip us out of our complacency, both individually and corporately? Will it give us a fresh and honest and maybe even fearful sense of our own sin and liability for punishment and discipline if we should hold on to it, if we should refuse to do what we've already done, Repent of it. Turn from it. Will it lead us to do what was read for us in James chapter 4 when we're exposed as being an idolatrous and adulterous people to be wretched and mourn and weep, to let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom? But it will it also propel us not just to mourn, but to take it one step further and follow the command of Jesus the head of his church, who took the judgment that his church deserved upon himself, but also continues to discipline and bring about the sanctification and the purity of his church. When he told that loveless church in Ephesians, the one who was called to remember the heights from which it had fallen, to repent and to do the works that you once did at first. If not, I will come to you and to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yes, judgment is a very real threat for the people of God today. We are seeing it, as I've mentioned, play out before us almost each and every day. The Lord will not let the rebellious, stubborn sin of his people go on without recourse. 
He does remove lampstand. He does bring judgment. And such a reality does need to wake us up. It should lead us to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For as Paul told the church in Galatia, a, a church very much struggling with stubbornness and rebellion, rebellion, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that you will reap. But this reality also must drive us to Christ. The lover of our soul, the lover of his church, our head. For even though judgment is threatened, even though judgment is very real, he still promises grace and mercy and strength to those who repent. To those who grieve their sin and turn again from it into him. And this is the invitation that is offered to us both by the prophet and by our Savior in our head. To repent yet again. To turn yet again to receive the grace and mercy of our Savior. So as we close, the question before us then, just not as individuals only, but also as the people of God. This local expression of the bride of Christ, how will we respond to this song of sorrow? Will we respond like the people in that titanic meme? Watch the displays of God's judgment around us and think we're not in any danger if we harbor our own sin. Sit back and watch. Or maybe even be convinced that it could never come for us. Or will we respond and join with Micah? Will we lament? Will we grieve those areas where we still are faithless? Grieve those areas where we still need pruning and sanctification, both individually and as a church. Will we see our sin and plead with the Lord to do what we are going to sing in a moment, to forgive us, but also to let his grace, now like a fetter, bind our wandering hearts again? Because we know we're prone to wander. We feel it day in and day out. We even feel it as a church. And we need to let this song whip us back up into shape, whip us back up out of complacency and into a renewed dependence upon the grace and strength of our head, Jesus Christ. God's judgment against the sin of his people should grieve and awaken the hearts of his people to the reality of our own sin. And also let me add the reality of his grace to those who repent. Let us pray. Father God, would you indeed whip us out of complacency complacency towards the reality of your judgment against sin in particular our sin whip us out of the complacency of thinking that we can hide our sin thinking that we can keep it in the dark forgetting that you see all instead may we your people be the ones leading in lamenting in grieving our continued faithfulness faithlessness and instead, by your spirit, would you strengthen us as we plead with you, as we fall upon your mercy yet again. Would you strengthen us then to be your faithful people. To declare that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of salvation to those who turn to you. May you strengthen us and equip us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.